Hi, I'm Jeremiah Johnston. Here's the podcast for The Jeremiah Johnston Show. And don't forget, you can also listen live across the Faith Radio Network Saturdays at 11 a.m. Central or 12 Eastern for the entire hour. And if you want your question read on the live show, go ahead and send it to me at www.askjjj.com. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to The Jeremiah Johnston Show. Combining cutting-edge biblical scholarship with meaningful, thought-provoking discussions and practical answers to your questions. It's time to own your faith and be a Christian thinker with our host, author, Bible scholar, apologist, and president of the Christian Thinker Society, Dr. Jeremiah Johnston. And friends, welcome to the Jeremiah Johnston Show. I am so excited to have you joining us today. This may be your first time actually engaging with this program. And this program is utterly unique in that this we offer every single broadcast with two things, both intent and content behind every single episode of the Jeremiah Johnston Show live right now across Faith Radio Network and then many of you uh, who connect with us after the fact in the online streaming podcast all of the different on-demand channels. It's, it's delightful to have you with us. I say we have intent and content precisely because I receive thousands of questions via askjjj.com on our website at christianthinkers.com. And so many of you want to know questions about your faith, questions about your spiritual growth, but questions about what's happening in the culture today. Questions from skeptics or atheists or something you heard at the coffee shop that maybe didn't just set well with you. And you know what? The Holy Spirit is using those things to grow and strengthen your faith. And what I love about this program is we do not shy away from the difficult questions. Arthur Holmes, the great professor of Wheaton University, died in 2011, wrote the book in 1977, All Truth is God's Truth. And what did, what did Professor Holmes mean by all truth is God's truth? When we believe that all truth is ultimately God's truth, we understand that there is not a, a truth in any discipline that we cannot reconcile with our personal faith in Jesus Christ. Now, friends, I'm very concerned about something that I'm delighted to spend the entire hour discussing with my illustrious guest, Professor Craig Evans, who I have live in studio with me today. I fear that we are quickly becoming an ah-historical culture. We no longer value the historical past enough to actually learn the lessons of the past, to make decisions for today, to add value and meaning, beauty and justice to our lives. I fear that we have become this, uh, we just live in a technological age. We have so much information and so little wisdom. And so today in this program, we're going to talk about the historical past. We're going to talk specifically about biblical archaeology and how certain very recent discoveries shed light on the historical Jesus in significant ways. But it's going to be up to you as the listener to go from content, intent, information, which you're going to have, and knowledge to go direct to wisdom. And that's what my prayer is for you. I want you to listen to the things that you are going to engage with in this discussion today with Professor Craig Evans and I on this program. But I, it's up to you to go to wisdom, to actually think historically and biblically for the decisions that you need to make as you face whatever it is this week in your spiritual life or just in your community life. So welcome aboard to a great program. Now my guest today, Professor Craig Evans, is a celebrated professor across the biblical studies landscape all over the world. I would call him the finest historical Jesus scholar 
in the world. And friends, he has over 700 publications to his name. But what's fantastic about Professor Craig Evans is he has this phenomenal ability to be a great storyteller. He's very much an Indiana Jones in the best sense of the idea Esque, but biblical scholar, and that he's actually gotten his hands dirty in so many of the archaeological digs. And I have so many questions for him about some of the things that we're hearing today and how it relates to biblical studies, and specifically some of these exciting and, listen, controversial discoveries. Stay with us. I'm going to be back in studio in 90 seconds with the John Bassanio, distinguished professor of Christian origins from Houston Baptist University, my dear friend and colleague, Professor Craig Evans. Stay with us back in 90 seconds. Welcome back to the show. This is Jeremiah Johnston, and as mentioned in the opener, I have joining me in studio today Professor Craig Evans, my dear friend and colleague. Professor Evans, you are the distinguished professor, the John Bassanio Distinguished Professor of Christian Origins at Houston Baptist University. You've written over 700 publications on things related to biblical scholarship, interpretation, archaeology. You've preached around the world, uh, and you're a dear friend of mine. And so appreciate you coming on this program with us today on the Jeremiah Johnson Show. Good to be with you, Dr. Johnston. Professor Evans, I have in my hand the recent Biblical Bible Study magazine uh, that is put out by the Faith Life Company, or as you know, as many of our listeners know, Logos Bible Software. And you are on the cover of this magazine. It's a fantastic photo. It looks like you're standing. In fact, are you standing in a synagogue uh, in somewhere in Capernaum, or where are you in this program on the cover of this magazine? No, you have it right. I'm right in front of the synagogue at Capernaum. Now, you know, it's beautiful. Everybody has seen it. Millions of tourists have seen it. The synagogue that you're looking at that's been partially restored in the 20th century dates to probably the 4th century. However, what makes it so interesting is it's right on the spot where the synagogue was in the time of Jesus. We mm. know that there's a very old volcanic black basalt foundation beneath this beautiful limestone synagogue from a later time. And we have found coins and other indicators that that's the original synagogue foundation that dates to the first century B.C. So when you go there and see that synagogue, now that's not the synagogue Jesus saw, but it's the very place where he attended the synagogue in Capernaum. And that's really neat. That's powerful. And friends, I hope that you get a copy. This is the March-April 2019 edition of Bible Study Magazine. There's a feature story called Why Archaeology Matters for Bible Study. And I want to talk to Dr. Evans about uh, remnants from this very theme. But I want to begin kind of where I was at in my opening monologue, Professor Evans, we, I fear we are, raised, we are living in a day and age that, that, think, that is very much ahistorical. They do not value the historical past, the great books, um, the great ideas from those books, the lessons of history. And so there are some Christians that they really make a decision when they ignore biblical history and specifically biblical archaeology. And it's a decision that really impacts, in, I believe, in a negative way, their own spiritual growth. It just short-circuits it. We live in a day of free-fall interpretation. Oh, I'm just going to figure out what this means to me. Why, Dr. Evans, you've been around the world, you've been in archaeological sites, you've published, you've taken questions from Christians in every kind of um, demographic, really. Why do we need to think historically and why does Bible archaeology matter for perhaps the new Christian who's listening right now or the skeptic who's coming on this program for the first time? I think it's very important, and one of the reasons why 
is there's this notion out there that the Bible is an outdated book. It's talking about a bunch of old mythological stories, things that didn't really happen. And so people don't know that, well, actually the Bible ties into history, contributes to history, is informed by history. And what a lot of people don't know, and these are people inside the church, That's right. uh, which just blows me away and disappoints me. You know, you would expect people outside the church perhaps not to know much. But inside the church, it's just astonishing to me how many Christians don't know these things. And so what always comes as a surprise, and I know this from experience, you've alluded to that, giving lectures around the world and so on. They're always surprised to find out that archaeologists who work in the land of Israel and elsewhere in the Holy Land, uh, they use the Bible as a very important source. In fact, it's the number one source. Mm. Mm. Why? Because the Bible has become recognized by scholars and, and uh, historians and archaeologists to be very accurate. And so the way, the way I like to put it is uh, the Bible helps the archaeologist know where to dig and how to interpret what he digs up. And if the Bible was just a bunch of fairy tales and myths, that would not be the case. Mm. And so to me, the ongoing archaeology constantly every day, literally every day, is confirming that the Bible is, uh, yes, an old book, but a very accurate book, a book that knows what it's talking about. And that's why, that's a big reason why I would say to modern people inside the church or outside the church, you really ought to read it. In fact, there was a time, and you don't have to go back that far in history, not even 100 years, nobody could claim to be educated. Nobody could claim to be literate if he or she had not read through the Bible cover to cover. Mm -hmm. And now we have people with PhDs, and they don't even know what the Bible is. They don't mm -hmm. know what's in it. And mm -hmm. that, that really that, that concerns me a lot. Mm. And so does archaeology matter for the Christians today going to church, not just for the scholar, and why? Well, archaeology does matter, and it isn't just for the purpose of defending the integrity of the Bible, the truthfulness of the Bible. That's That seems obvious, but... Uh, what, what is often overlooked is the archaeology is important for helping us understand the Bible. Mm. And uh, I know well-meaning Christians, even pastors, you know, oh, they believe they believe the Bible, they trust the Bible, they like to talk about it, they preach about it, but they don't know it very well, and they're uninformed by the archaeology, and so sometimes their interpretation is inaccurate. And so archaeology is a very important uh, uh, component. It's a tool for interpretation. And that's the big reason why I promote it. You, you love the Bible? You want to understand it? Great. Well, archaeology plays a very important role in making that possible. So it really helps the Christian understand the meaning behind the text. And I want to tee you up because it's going to go to our larger discussion of Jesus and the Ossuaries, this fantastic book you've written. But, for example, for I, I receive, as I mentioned, hundreds of questions related to this program, a lot of questions that are Bible stumpers to the average person that picks up the Bible who doesn't know much of the historical context or the archaeological consequences. And so they read a passage like Matthew 8 where Jesus says, oh, let the dead bury their dead, follow me now. And 
I actually had someone send me an email, Dr. Evans. They thought Jesus was being a little harsh uh, with this comment to the young man who, no, don't follow, don't go, you know, let the dead bury your bed. Follow, follow me now. How does archaeology, Professor Evans, shed light on Matthew chapter 8 and help us understand the meaning? Well, <clears throat> that's a good question. That one, I love it because what happened is Jesus says to a young man, follow me, be my disciples, start traveling with me, proclaim the kingdom of God. And he says, you know, he's interested. Well, that sounds good, but first let me bury my father. Well, if you don't understand the culture and the archaeology, you don't even know what he said. And a lot of us think, oh, my goodness, uh, the young man's father has just died or he's on his deathbed and Jesus is callous and he's saying, oh, who cares? That's not important. Well, in the Jewish world, that is very important. <laughs> so how could Jesus be saying that? How could he really mean that? Well, if you know Jewish burial practice, you know what's going on. What has happened, what the young man is saying is, my father died last year, and the annual, the anniversary is coming up where I gather his bones and put them in a bone box, an ossuary. And that's the Jewish custom. It's called oscillagium. It happens once a year. It happens on the anniversary of a loved one's death. And so he's saying, that I, need, I need to hang around at home because this anniversary is coming up. There will be a ceremony. And Jesus is saying, hey, look. Let the dead bury their own dead, which is how the text actually reads. He's already in the tomb with dead relatives. Let them stay there together. We have a more pressing obligation to preach the kingdom of God to those who are alive. Mm. We, it's a priority thing. We need to proclaim the gospel now. Let the dead take care of themselves. That's what Jesus is saying. And, of course, it makes good sense if you know your archaeology, tombs, bone boxes, burial practices, then you understand what Jesus has said. He's not being callous. He's not being insensitive. So this is a phenomenal example. And again, if you're just joining us right now on Faith Radio Network, this is Jeremiah Johnson. My guest is Professor Craig Evans. We've done some programs in the past, but we're doing a solo program face-to-face in studio going through different Bible passages and why archaeology is so vital to help have an appropriate interpretation. And Dr. Evans, you just showed how we really can't understand Matthew chapter 8 if we don't understand the archaeology behind it. And so I want to go right into another passage. I just want to pick out another nugget. Jesus waits four days. He hears Lazarus has died. His dear friend Lazarus, John 11. Jesus waits four days to go see him. He even weeps. It's interesting. Omniscient, and yet he weeps knowing his best friend has died. If we were alive in the first century... Why would it be significant? What does archaeology tell us about Jesus waiting four days to go see Lazarus, about the effects of his death, which makes the miracle all the more powerful? Yeah, that's a very good, uh, very good question. In the context of John chapter 11, Jesus is talking about being the resurrection. And in the Jewish belief... I know this seems strange to us, but when a person died, and this is because of the realities of of long time ago, people didn't really know if somebody was die had died or not. And it wasn't like it is today with modern medicine, heart monitors and so on. And so a person died, and they didn't really know a person was truly dead until decomposition actually begins. Oh. And so what happened was a tradition grew up that the spirit, the soul of the deceased, hung around the corpse for three days. That was the belief. And, uh, and after three days, the spirit left 
and then the person was really dead. Mm. There was no chance of being resuscitated. In other words, the only way Lazarus could come back would be resurrection. And that's the whole point Jesus made. So Jesus appears on the scene. Lazarus has been dead for four days. And Jesus says, roll aside the stone. And they say, but Lord, by now he smells. <laughs> the, you know, decomp is already underway. And Jesus, you know, calls forth, Lazarus, come forth. And he does. And, of course, that then shows that this is not one of those who knows, was he really dead or not? He really was dead. And so when Jesus says, I am the resurrection of life, he just he just put he put something behind it that how could anyone doubt it? They just saw something that would be eye popping. And so it was a dramatic uh, demonstration that he really did have resurrection power when he raised Lazarus. And any Jewish reader from the first century would recognize that. They'd know, my goodness, it's hard enough to raise somebody who's been dead one day, but four days, that is a miracle. Wow. Friends, don't you want to follow Dr. Craig Evans for this kind of powerful information that is going to bring the Bible alive? Go to Twitter and check him out right now, Dr. Craig A. Evans. That's at Dr. Craig A. Evans. Go ahead and check out his website, www.craigaevans.com. We're just getting this party started today on this program. Isn't it fun to talk about how archaeology sheds light on the Bible? We're not talking about a book of fables or fairy tales, myths or legends. We're talking about real people, real places, real events. Now, stay with us. In 90 seconds, I'm going to be back, and I'm going to talk about the very controversial. There have been lawsuits James Ossuary recently discovered. I have in my hands Craig Evans' excellent book, Jesus and the Ossuaries. You're not going to want to miss this. We're talking today about Bible scholarship. We're taking your questions at AskJJJ.com, and we're focusing on why archaeology matters in your Christian life. Stay with us. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Welcome back to the program. I'm here with Professor Craig Evans, who is the Bassanio Distinguished Professor of Christian Origins at Houston Baptist University and is known as a titan in biblical scholarship, a phenomenal historical Jesus scholar, and a great preacher, a great storyteller, someone who truly is a scholar in the holistic sense of the word in every area. Dr. Evans, thanks again for joining us in studio. I have in my hand your book, published by Baker, called Jesus and the Ossuaries, What Jewish Burial Practices Reveal About the Beginning of Christianity. Now, I want you to set this up because there are probably many people listening to us right now who have never heard of the James Ossuary. Will you please explain this fabulous discussion? Why is it controversial? What have we learned? Where are we at today uh, as it relates to this important discovery? Uh, it probably is the biggest discovery that's been made uh, in 100 years. It came to light in 2002. Uh, almost no one knew about it. Uh, the antiquities dealer who owned it didn't even realize what he had. And so a scholar from France visited him and was looking at his collection, and he said, do you have anything else? He says, well, I do. I have some things in storage. And so what did he have in storage? He had a bone box. And in the earlier segment on the program, we talked about bone boxes or ossuaries. 
And so uh, this scholar from France said, well, let me see it. And so he looked at it, and he, he, his eyes popped out of his head. He couldn't believe what he was looking at. Inscribed on the side of the ossuary were five Aramaic words. Three of them were names, and it said, <clears throat> Jacob or James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. Hmm. And he turns to the owner of the ossuary and says, do you realize who these people are? And he said, no. He had no idea. <laughs> I mean, he, you know, just like everybody else today, it seems, biblically illiterate, didn't even know what he had in his own collection. He says, well, these, these, these names match the very people in the New Testament. This Jacob or James, brother of Jesus, is probably the, the leader of the early church in Jerusalem for about 20 years. And his father is Joseph, and you know, and his brother is Jesus. This is Jesus of the Christian Church. Wow! And it just exploded on the scene. It was announced in October of 2002. Its first public display was in Toronto, Canada, where the Society of Biblical Literature had its annual meeting. I was right there. I saw it in November of 2002. And immediately there were questions. Is it authentic? Has, is, there, has, is there forgery here? It went to trial. There were tests. And at the end of a big debate for 10 years, the owner was acquitted. It was determined that all five words are authentic. How do we know that? Science showed it. There's original ancient patina in all five of the words. And so now we have what could could actually be the bone box in which the bones of James, the leader of the church from the early 40s to the early 60s of the first century, in which his bones were placed. And so this is just an astounding archaeological discovery. Wow. And so why a book on it? Why why did you feel the need at that time to write Jesus in the ossuaries? Is there, and let me follow that up with another question, are biblical scholars, I know Christians aren't, are biblical scholars aware of Jewish burial practices, and how did that shed light on this specific dis- discussion around the James Ossuary? Yeah, that's a great question. I was really lucky on that one, too. In the early 90s, I started going to Israel regularly, and one of the things that fascinated me were the tombs. And, of course, the Caiaphas tomb had just been discovered. And Caiaphas, the uh, high priest who had... Uh, condemned Jesus and handed him over to the Romans. Caiaphas's brother-in-law was a man named Annas, Annas Jr., son of Annas the Great, who had been high priest. Well, do you know who this Annas Jr. is? <clears throat> He's the high priest that killed James. Hmm. So I was interested in Jewish burial practices, bone boxes, and of course what we learned from the skeletons, like the man Yehohanan, who still had a crucifixion nail in his right heel. And so I I began collecting information, taking photographs, writing down inscriptions. And so when 2002 rolled around and the James Ossuaries discovered, I was very excited. And I prepared a lecture that I gave at that Society of Biblical Literature meeting in 2002. And there was it was in a hotel. There were two large rooms, uh, two ballrooms. Each would seat about 300 people. And when it was announced what my topic was, and I had no idea the coincidence that my topic on bone boxes and then the James thing had just been found 
everybody piled into my room. I felt bad for the guy next door. I think he had <laughs> yeah. three people. And I had 600 people jam into my room to hear the lecture. Well, it occurred to me, huh, people seem to be interested in this interesting topic. And somebody from Baylor University Press heard the lecture and said, can you turn that into a book? And a year later, the book came out, Jesus and the Ossuaries. So the reason I'm interested in the topic is it at so many points, which we've already tried to show in this program, bone uh, burial practices shed light on the Gospels. And one of the most important ones, if you just stop think about it, it's the burial of Jesus himself. Hmm. And what the women were thinking when they came to the tomb Sunday morning, what they were expecting. A lot of people don't even understand that. And I realized in learning more about Jewish burial practices, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus made a whole lot more sense. So this is so outstanding, talking about ossuaries, bone boxes. And can you just, can you just give a, a footnote? Because I don't want to lose I want to keep guiding our audience by the hand because we have people from all across the spectrum who are listening. Are these the bone boxes on the Mount of Olives that we see just speckling the Mount of Olives? Can you remind us specifically what is an ossuary, just for someone that might have just joined us midstream in this program? Yes, an ossuary, and you are correct. There are fine examples of ossuaries on the Mount of Olives at Domus Flevit. And you go up there, you know, the place where Jesus wept, where he looked down on Jerusalem below him. A bone box, and I sometimes, you know, you can't see me. I'm on radio right now, or I do do my (laughs) bone box dance. I've done it before many audiences. And so what you do is you just take your left hand and put it on your right knee. Take your right hand and put it on your right hip. That's how long they are. And then put your hands on your hips. That's how wide they are. <laughs> and then put your hands on both sides of your rib cage. That's how deep they are. Okay. That's the size of a bone box. In other words, it holds an adult skeleton that's disarticulated, that's mm-hmm. been taken apart. It's part of the Jewish burial practice. When a person dies, the body is washed, perfumed, wrapped, placed in the tomb, and people mourn at or even in the tomb for seven days. Then one year later, the family comes back, they go into the tomb, and they gather up the bones. And believe me, after one year in a limestone tomb, they're bones. Because mm. limestone dissolves, desiccates any biological tissue. The skeleton is then taken apart and placed in a box. And that's what we call the ossuary or bone box. And one out of four of these bone boxes have the or has the name of the deceased written in the limestone on the outside and that's why we have this one that says James son of Joseph brother of Jesus so one quarter of all these limestone boxes have the names of the people inside the box were there any other bones in the James ossuary that would have been from any other relatives or just James? Well, you know, that's a great question. We don't know because the ossuary had fallen into somebody's hands, got passed around. Eventually, an antiquities dealer in the 1970s sold it to the man who now owns it. And <clears throat> what he found when he cleaned out the box, he found some bone chips. To the best of my knowledge, none of those bone chips, not one, has been studied 
apparently one bone chip still has a little bit of bone marrow. So I suppose I suppose some DNA information could be recovered. So do we have chips from two skeletons or three? I don't know. Maybe only one. Some ossuaries have as many as six or seven skeletons. Sometimes wow. if an infant dies, the little tiny baby bones are placed inside the chest cavity of an adult inside an ossuary. I've seen lots of pictures. I've actually held in my hands bones from the bone boxes, including the, the heel of Yehohanan with the iron crucifixion spike still in his right heel. Wow. Wow. And I think you've I think we've seen some photos. You can Google photos of those. Definitely worth checking out. Uh, and Professor Evans, I understand that so much was still coming to light. This book appeared just after the discovery of the James Ossuary. On page 112, and again, friends, I want to encourage you to pick up this book. I misstated. It's by Baylor University Press, Jesus and the Ossuaries by Craig Evans. Um, if you were to update the book today, would you pay, take a stronger position uh, because really no position is taken on the James Ossuary as it relates to its authenticity. Where are you at right now? Um, well, what, is, what, have you, what have you been persuaded with? Any new material you can Yeah, leave? I mean, there's no longer any doubt about it. Uh, when my book came out, people were saying, oh, the inscription might be inauthentic, it might be a forgery, and so on, and that was being debated. So I don't take a position in the book. But since then, there's been further... Uh, uh, chemical analysis of the inscription, and that's resulted in the discovery that there is authentic patina. You can't fake ancient patina. So if you take a limestone, uh, limestone today and scratch something in it, anybody who knows anything will look at it, any chemist will look at it and say there is no patina here. Patina forms gradually over centuries. You can't fake that. It's organic. Mm. It, it, you know, limestone is organic. A lot of people don't know that. It's not rock. It's seashells and uh, sea life bones compacted and compressed. And so when there's fresh limestone carved out of the ground, it actually bleeds because mm. it has moisture. And so it slowly over the period of time completely dries out. Well, that bleeding mingles with dust, uh, other organic material in the air, and it forms, I guess it'd be like algae, you might say. Mm. And so you can't fake that. And so there's now no longer any question about it. It's been confirmed. External chemists have studied it. They have no axe to grind. It's been looked at. It is authentic. There's no longer any doubt about it. The only question is identification. And so there's, a, there's one chance in two or three it actually belongs to the New Testament people we've been talking about. We've only got 60 seconds before we have to jump to a break, Professor Evans. But what are for the hypercritic, oh, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus, that's just some other James. That's not the biblical James. What are the chances? How would you respond to a skeptical question like that? There, the, there are only two bone boxes that actually mention a brother like that. The typical formula is either a name, you know, here lies Matthew, or here lies Matthew, son of somebody else. There's only one other box that goes on and to say, oh, and he's also the brother of. The theory is the brother of, the brother, is more famous than either the deceased or his father. Mm. Well, the most famous Jesus we know of is <laughs> Jesus of Nazareth. So my money's on him. So good. Friends, we've got to jump. Uh, we're going to be back in 90 seconds with more discussion around biblical archaeology, the controversies, the truth behind it. Stay with us. We're talking to Craig Evans.
Jeremiah Johnson Show. I'm joined in studio today in Houston, Texas with Professor Craig Evans, who's the Bassanio Distinguished Professor of Christian Origins at Houston Baptist University. I want to, I want to encourage you um, to connect with Dr. Evans on his website, on Facebook, his public Facebook page, as well as his Twitter, at Dr. Craig A. Evans. Uh, this program, Dr. Evans, is going way too fast. Uh, we're discussing why archaeology matters. And I want to ask you a question for a moment why is there so much controversy around the why was there so much controversy around the James Ossuary discovery? Uh, the, I, I think in a nutshell it has to do with the antiquities trade. Uh, I understand that. I'm very sympathetic to it. The, basically, here's the, here's the thinking. Because there is an antiquities trade, because tourists can go to Israel, because collectors can go to Israel and buy things, this encourages looting. That's the theory. And there's got to be some truth to that. And the, uh, the Israel Antiquities Authority, the IAA, doesn't have enough of a budget. They can't police all the sites. And Israel is an ancient land. I'll tell you right now, we could just jump in a truck, drive out in the middle of anywhere in Israel and start digging, and we will bump into something. It's an old land. It's thousands and thousands of years old, people living there and so on. So antiquities are everywhere. There are tombs everywhere. And, and unscrupulous people are looking for things that they can sell. That's the problem. Well, the owner of the James Oshery is an antiquities collector. He has several thousand pieces in his collection. And so right away that puts him at odds with certain people in Israel. They assume he's probably purchased some looted things. I mean, look what ISIS is doing in the Middle East today. There's looted stuff all over the place. Why, just last year, two magic bowls, ceramic Mm. bowls from Iraq came into my possession. Nobody knows where they came from. They, They probably were looted. And so this is happening. And so it drives the Israel Antiquities Authority people crazy. So I think there was a little bit of an axe to grind. And so out comes this fantastic inscription, this ossuary that says, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. And naturally, somebody shouts out, it's a fake. It's a forgery. And it brings discredit to the antiquities trade. So there were personalities involved. And actually, some I can't share with you on over the air what I actually know, Mm -hmm. because some of this stuff is under investigation. There could well be criminal charges brought, not against the owner of the ossuary, but against his accusers. Mm. Uh, And so it's a touchy issue here. So when you ask that question, man, that you're opening a can of worms. Mm. And Professor Evans, I understand there are somewhere around 300 active archaeological sites in the land of Israel today. Is that accurate? Yes, that, that's correct. And there could be a lot more, too, if there was more manpower. Uh, you know, most of this is volunteer stuff. I've been a volunteer digger myself. I've been on digs with 50 people. Scott Stripling at a seminary nearby is in Israel right now with over 100 volunteers. And uh, so everybody's running around in Israel. Like I said, you can dig almost any place and find something. Lots of, uh, of archaeological sites are discovered by accident. Uh, a, uh, a builder goes in. He's going to put in a building. The bulldozers start pushing earth around the ground. Bingo, he runs into something. A road, a highway is being widened, and it runs into something. So there are digs going on all the time. There are several thousand volunteers 
every year. It's usually in the summer months when students are out of school. Thousands of people in Israel digging all the time. It's impossible to keep up with everything that's being found. I, I have two or three websites I visit all the time. I lecture at Houston Baptist University a couple nights uh, during the school year every week. I give reports almost weekly. I give reports to my students about the latest finds in Israel. Dr. Evans, help us guide our audience to have the right uh, cadence, the right nomenclature. When we talk about archaeology, the science of biblical archaeology in the Bible, do we say, and I'm asking this because so many have texted in, we also have a question that just popped up. Uh, I need you to define the word patina for those listening to us. Can you do that as a matter of fact right now? Someone has just popped in a question. You keep using the word patina. What does that mean for the non-expert? Yes, a patina, as I think I said, it's it's uh, organic. And it's it's like, well, okay, here's an unofficial word. It's grunge. Gotcha. It's ancient okay. grunge that develops. It's in a protected spot. It's not going to get rubbed off. That usually means it's inside an inscribed letter or word. And so it, it has certain characteristics that will tell the chemist who looks at it that it's ancient and not recent. Would it be accurate to say that archaeology, quote, proves the Bible? Because I want to be a careful, critical Christian thinker. Help us understand the right nomenclature when, we, when we're evangelizing friends, we're talking to skeptics. What's the right words we should use? Because sometimes I hear people say, well, archaeology proves the Bible. What do you think about that? Well, you know what? Sometimes it does. But that's a loaded word. What do you really mean by prove the Bible? Archaeology can't prove that God exists. Archaeology can't prove that Jesus is the Messiah or the Son of God. Archaeology can't prove that Jesus' death on the cross saves people from sin. And those are the most important elements of what the Bible teaches. So what can archaeology prove? Well, it can prove that the historical narratives in the Bible actually are, I think as you said earlier in the program, the narratives actually are talking about real people, real places, real events. In other words, it's not mythology and legends. And so archaeology can show that. But the real value of archaeology, in my opinion, is that it provides us with vital background information. Mm. It provides us with vital context so that we can understand the Bible, all of it, including what it says theologically. And so that's the great value of archaeology. It isn't so much that it proves this or proves that. And sometimes, by the way, it does. But what archaeology does is it helps us understand the Bible much better. So, friends, take that as as an important wisdom uh, insight in your life. We don't need to say it proves the Bible. Let's be specific. Let's be surgical in how we evangelize and do apologetics. It helps us gain greater insights, greater understanding to the larger culture and context of what's working out, not only in the life of Jesus, but in the world around him. Um, let's, let's end right where we began, um, because this time is going way too fast, Dr. Evans. I'm going to try to talk you into a part two since we're in studio together, because there are so many other questions on my screen right now related to biblical archaeology. Uh, but let's just talk, take the synagogue for a moment, the assembly, the place where Jesus taught. Again, friends, I'm holding in my hands the March-April 2019 issue of Bible Study Magazine, where Craig Evans has featured us, the front cover story, Why Archaeology Matters for Study. Um, take us, if you could, right now to the Holy Land. We're all standing with you in a synagogue. Why is this important for understanding the teaching ministry of Jesus, just the place of the synagogue, Dr. Evans? 
Great question. It's because that's where Jesus taught. The mm. Gospels tell us, all four of them tell us that Jesus routinely taught in the synagogues in Israel. And so to understand that, number one, there really were synagogues. Number two, how many were there? What, what did they look like? How big were they? What kind of activities took place in the synagogue? Those are all relevant questions, and archaeology can help us answer those questions. There was a skeptic 25 years ago. I, it's hard to believe this, but he actually argued 25 years ago that there were no synagogues prior <laughs> to the year 70. That when the Gospels talked about synagogues, they were anachronistic. They were written later and in a later time when synagogues first began to appear. And so they just assumed, well, there must have been synagogues a long time ago during Jesus' ministry. Well, of course, I, I find that absurd. Uh, even at the time he said this, 25 years ago, this particular scholar, he's no longer with us, uh, there were at least three, if not four, synagogues that archaeologists had confirmed that existed before 70. There was an inscription found in Jerusalem that refers to repairing and expanding a synagogue right there in Jerusalem. And besides, uh, what has happened in the last 25 years? These 300 excavations that take place in Israel every year, well, about seven more synagogues have been found. There are now 10 synagogues confirmed that date in the time of Jesus and two others that are being looked at. I mean, we might have to update this program next year because there might be yet another one found. And so as excavations continue, more things from the time of Jesus are being found. Dr. Evans, so we have the synagogue where Jesus taught. We, we hear why it's important. Um, talk for a moment about Jesus as rabbi. We only have three minutes left or so. But why is his teaching style, why do his followers refer to him as a rabbi, and why is that, some, why is that important for us understanding the interpretation of his teaching? Well, first of all, I think calling Jesus rabbi immediately suggests that he's a teacher, exactly as the Gospels say. In fact, the Gospel of John translates rabbi, which literally, it's Hebrew, it means my great one. He translates it as didaskalos, teacher, because that is how it was understood. And so... It, that just the fact that Jesus is called rabbi routinely, that underscores he is a teacher it, as the Gospels show him. So he teaches the Sermon on the Mount. He teaches the Beatitudes. He teaches his disciples how to pray. And, of course, where do teachers do teaching? In the synagogue. And so synagogue and rabbi are two terms that come together. Again, you see this coherence. Uh, the Gospels know what they're talking about, and archaeology supports them. And by the way, we have the word rabbi inscribed on some ossuaries. So what's the evidence for how we, why we believe that Jesus could possibly speak Latin, um, Greek, of course, Aramaic? Well, uh, that's a great question, because in uh, Israel was a multilingual environment. Greek was the dominant language of the elite for 300 years when Jesus was born. And so Aramaic was the local language. Hebrew was the language of Holy Scripture. And Greek was the language. Do you realize that uh, 
Italian-born Roman emperors spoke Greek, mm. and usually their favorite literature was Greek. So Greek was a very in the in the eastern side of the Roman Empire. Greek was very important. So there are scholars who have argued that Jesus probably was fluent in his mother tongue, which was Aramaic. Probably spoke Greek and didn't need an interpreter when he spoke to the Syrophoenician woman, when he spoke to Pontius Pilate, the governor. And Jesus might have even known some Latin. Hmm. And do you think that he was speaking in Latin with Pilate and John 18 when Pilate asked, what is truth? Do you think this is a conversation that is happening? I mean, we can only speculate, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, I would, I would say if I had to make a wager, I'd probably bet on Greek. Because I would find it extraordinary for Pilate to be appointed governor uh, in that part of the world, the eastern half of the Roman Empire, if he didn't know any Greek. Mm. So he probably was fluent in Latin and fluent in uh, uh, Greek. He probably knew a handful of Aramaic words, but I doubt very much he could converse in Aramaic. Uh, But it's quite possible when he encounters Jesus that they spoke to each other uh, in Greek. Hmm. Can you give us uh, 45 seconds on the Dead Sea Scrolls? We haven't even touched those, and I want to do that in part two. But why are the Dead Sea Scrolls so vital for understanding the Bible in its wider context? Two big reasons. It's a library that dates back to the time of Jesus and 150 years earlier. So it's a 200-year-old living library from his time. First big important thing, 38 of the 30, you know, 38 of the 39 books of the Old Testament are there. So we have this huge witness to the Hebrew Bible and some Aramaic and some Greek too, by the way, from that time. Secondly, these writings shed light because many of them are not Bible, but they're commentary and prophecy. And they shed light on the hopes and expectations of the coming Messiah. And some of the writings shed light on how the law was interpreted and what was kosher and what wasn't, works of the law, that kind of thing. So the scrolls are of huge importance. Wow. Dr. Evans, I want to have you back. We have to do a part two on myth busters of Bible archaeology. These comments that have been made where archaeology showed, no, we actually could trust the Bible. Are you game? I'm game. Okay, friends, we've got to jump to a break. I'm going to be back to close the program. Stay with us. You're listening to The Jeremiah Johnston Show. Friends, we've had a tremendous discussion today with Professor Craig Evans on biblical archaeology, why it's important. We've discussed specific passages where we really cannot interpret the passage correctly without understanding the context. We wouldn't know that context without studying the material culture. That's where the science of biblical archaeology is so vital. I want to remind you, over 300 archaeological digs are happening right now in the land of Israel. Have you been? I want to encourage you to go to the land of Israel, study the Bible lands. And it's not only the land of Israel. There's actually the wider world. I call it the holy lands, plural, around the Mediterranean world, the worlds that the New Testament and the Bible touch. Go to these places. Invest in 
actually enlightening your world and the wider biblical archaeology world, of course, but this will actually bring the Bible alive to you. Friends, I went to the Holy Land for the very first time many years ago. I took my wife, Audrey. I had a very special experience. Audrey had been baptized by immersion in our local church, but when we went to the land of Israel, Audrey and I found ourselves caught up in studying in the very footsteps of Jesus. In fact, we've never read our Bible the same since going on that initial trip together. I've been many times since. So is Audrey. But Audrey came to me and she said, Jeremiah, we were at the Jordan River. She said, would you baptize me in the Jordan River? Now, some people have actually texted into this program at AskJJJ.com and actually said, hey, would it be okay to be baptized a second time in the land of Israel? Well, of course it would be okay for you to be baptized a second time in the land of Israel. To the pure, all things are pure. And as you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, when you visit the Holy Land, you get caught up in this euphoric atmosphere where, oh my gosh, the things that I have given my life to study, they're actually true. And they transform your life. And of course you want to celebrate that. And so it was my privilege many years ago, uh, wow, almost 15 years ago now, to baptize Audrey by immersion in the Jordan River. Think about how powerful that is. Friends, this has been a fantastic program. Thank you for joining us. I want to encourage you to listen to it again. Definitely listen to the archive. Listen to uh, our past programs on the Jeremiah Johnston Show podcast. Thanks so much for all those ratings that are coming in and all of your questions as well. We're going to be back next week with a second edition with Professor Craig Evans. I want to talk about Mythbusters, friends. Some of these comments that have been made about the Bible were literally a, an archaeological discovery just blew them away. Okay, So we're going to go through some of the top, and then that's going to really encourage you not only on the reliability of your Bible, but it's, we're going to actually understand some passages better in light of these recent discoveries. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to be back next week with another discussion on The Jeremiah Johnston Show. Hi, I'm Jeremiah Johnston. Thanks for listening to the podcast from The Jeremiah Johnston Show. I definitely want to hear from you, so if you have a follow-up question from today's program, you can submit it to me at www.askjjj.com. You'll also see how you can connect with us from there across social media. And don't forget, these conversations are available because of listener support. And you can make a gift right now to the Faith Radio Network at www.myfaithradio.com. And to avoid missing future editions of The Jeremiah Johnston Show, please subscribe to the podcast at iTunes. You can do a Google Play, RSS feed. And thanks for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of the program.